Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Bible Ponder for this week. This week, I want to do something a little bit different, and I'll do it for the next couple of weeks as well, where I'm going to cover a few um, concepts and texts that aren't um, necessarily in the common Bibles that we have in front of us usually. So today I want to talk a little bit about uh, a chapter of the book of 1 Maccabees. And 1 Maccabees is a book of the Bible if you are a Catholic or if you are Greek Orthodox. Um, if you have a Catholic version of the NRSV, you'll have 1 Maccabees actually there in your Bible along with a few other books. Um, for those of us who are um, Protestants, we'll often call these apocryphal books, and they are about as close as you can be to being in the Bible without being in the Bible. But part of why they're really interesting isn't just for um, what they can offer us in terms of that, that sort of close to biblical, maybe moral instruction, but 1 Maccabees in particular offers us a really interesting glimpse historically into what we also call the intertestamental period and that, that time period between the end of the Hebrew Bible and then when we pick up again with the Gospels. And 1 Maccabees comes at a time pretty close to um, when the book of Daniel was written. It, it recounts events in the 160s BC when Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a descendant of Alexander the Great, is ruling over sort of part of the Greek kingdom and he has certain um, we'll say ignoble exploits in um, around Jerusalem and in Israel and the Israelites revolt and first Maccabees is really about that revolt who they followed um, a man called Judas who um, then became known as Maccabeus or the hammer and he leads a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and and their army and ends up sort of kicking them out but it also then leads to eventually Roman rule after that revolt and after other historical events, um, they end up getting taken over by Rome. But it offers also, I think, again, coming on from where we were in our previous series looking at Lamentations, where we were looking at biblical poetry and Hebrew poetry, and specifically this poetry is about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the way they felt about the loss of that temple. So after those events, you have later on with Ezra and Nehemiah, you hear the stories of the sort of return and how Ezra and Nehemiah lead um, people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to rebuild the city. And then eventually over time, the, the temple itself is rebuilt. And historically, that's called the second temple. And that lasts for quite uh, quite a few years, several hundred years, until it is eventually destroyed in 70 CE or, or 70 AD when um, it is destroyed by the Romans. But this um, particular passage, I think, gives us, again, that glimpse as Lamentations did to the feelings towards the temple, the feelings towards Jerusalem that the Israelites had. Um, First Maccabees will also give us that same glimpse, but even if closer to Jesus, how the people of Israel were feeling about the temple and about what was going on. And it shows us more clearly the historical situation in which Jesus was living and in which Jesus is acting as a prophet, as a preacher, as a political agitator, and as a messiah.
So it, it's quite long, so I'll read through it fairly quickly and just make a few comments, but really listen for some of those historical markers. I think you'll recognize some from just a, a general overview of history, um, and you'll also um, be able to pick up um, some, some of the way it sounds um, like a lot of other biblical stories, and I'll point that out along the way. Originally, this would have been written in Hebrew. Um, the, the copies of it we have, the best copies, are translated into Greek along with the rest of the Old Testament. Um, most of the oldest copies of the Old Testament we have are in Greek, even though it was written in Hebrew because it was translated that way and then um, able to be copied because that was the more common language. So um, this is Hebrew translated into Greek, and now we have it in English. So 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 1. After Alexander, son of Philip the Macedonian, who came from the land of Kittim, had defeated King Darius of the Persians and the Medes, he succeeded him as king. That's Alexander the Great. He had previously become king of Greece. He fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death the kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth and plundered many nations. When the earth became quiet for him, he was exalted and his heart was lifted up. He gathered a very strong army and ruled over countries, nations, princes, and they became a tributary to him. Again, this is just the story of Alexander the Great that we know from history. After this, he fell sick and perceived that he was dying, so he summoned his most honored officers who had been brought up with him from youth and divided his kingdom among them while he was still alive. And after Alexander had reigned 12 years, he died. Then his officers began to rule each in his own place. They all put on crowns after his death. And so did their descendants after them for many years, and they caused many evils on the earth. From them came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. He had been a hostage in Rome. He began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks, and that comes out to about 175 BC. In those days, certain renegades came out of Israel and misled many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For, since we have separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king, who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to the Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. They joined with Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. This is beginning to sound like the beginning of a lot of other books of the Old Testament, in the books of Judges and in the books of Samuel and Kings. A lot of these stories from the Hebrew Bible begin with Israel and the people of Israel abandoning the covenant, becoming like the Gentiles, leaving behind their, the ways of the law to conform to the society around them. And so this book starts very similarly. It's in that same um, sort of line of literature, setting up the scene. We've set the historical scene of Alexander the Great into his descendants, all the way down to Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a major, major villain in, in the history of Israel. And then we get, there were some Jews living there who were like, hey, it's hard being Jewish and being separate. Let's be like the Gentiles. Let's build a gymnasium. Let's stop doing circumcision. Let's let's be more like the Gentiles. It'll make life easier for us. That is the start of the story, and it has a, a foreboding sense to it. 
Verse 16, when Antiochus saw that his kingdom was established, he determined to become king of the land of Egypt in order that he might reign over both kingdoms. So he invaded Egypt with a strong force, with chariots and elephants and cavalry, and with a large fleet. He engaged King Ptolemy of Egypt in battle, and Ptolemy turned and fled before him, and many were wounded and fell. They captured the fortified cities in the land of Egypt, and he plundered the land of Egypt. And if you remember from some of what we talked about in Lamentations, although this is a little bit of a different historical era, um, Egypt was often an ally to Israel. After subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned in the 143rd year, that's of the Greek Empire, which is about 169 BC. He went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. He took also the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, and the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like Nebuchadnezzar? Again, we're getting these parallels here in this story. We're in about 169 BC, but the writer of this document is setting up for us the parallels with um, Nebuchadnezzar and that sort of ransacking of the temple. Then we get a little poetic session section. Taking them all, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young women and young men became faint. The beauty of the women faded. Every bridegroom took up the lament. She who sat in the bridal chamber was mourning. Even the land trembled for its inhabitants. And all the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. Do you hear in that poetry, again, echoing lamentations there? Two years later, the king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute, and he came to Jerusalem with a large force. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. Again, this happened you know, 400 years earlier and is now happening again after it's all been rebuilt. They took captive the women and the children and seized the livestock. Then they fortified the city of David with a great strong wall and strong tower. Soon it became their citadel. They stationed there as sinful people, men who were renegades. These strengthened their position. They stored up arms and food and collecting the spoils of Jerusalem, they stored them there and became a great menace. And here we have another poetic section. For the citadel became an ambush against the sanctuary, an evil adversary of Israel at all times. On every side of the sanctuary they shed innocent blood. They even defiled the sanctuary. Because of them, the residents of Jerusalem fed, fled. She became a dwelling of strangers. She became strange to her offspring, and her children forsook her. Her sanctuary became desolate like a desert. Her feasts were turned into mourning, her Sabbaths into reproach, her honor into contempt. Her dishonor now grew as great as her glory. Her exaltation was turned into mourning. Again, echoes of lamentations there. And that feeling of the, the desolation of the city and of the temple. But it gets worse. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. 
And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and to the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices, and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbath and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane, so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. So King Antiochus Epiphanes' command is that everyone should become the same in their religious cult practices and be all like him and, and like the Gentiles and, and do sort of this whatever Greek way he's practicing. And so it's not just that he wants Israel to stop or that he is um, sort of outlawing what they're doing. He's actively enforcing um, a real deep um, humiliation of their practices, of defiling the Sabbath and festivals, of forgetting circumcision, of sacrificing pigs on the altar, the ultimate unclean animal, the, the thing forbidden to eat, and, and he's having it sacrificed on the altar. And so he is really, really pushing their buttons and really riling them up and doing really terrible things. Incidentally, this becomes something that I think the Roman Empire sort of learns from, because one of the things that the Roman Empire does later on when they start conquering the world is they actually, um, so in some ways, let certain places keep their religious practices because they found that was one way to pacify the people. So specifically in the time of Rome, they the Israelites, partly because they're so, <laughs> they, they held these things so strongly and partly because of the Maccabean revolt, they the Romans let them keep their religion because they learned that if you try and force them to let go of their religion, um, they're only going to rebel even sooner. They're only going to hate you even more. So if you let them have their religion, um, then that's going to help keep the peace a little bit. So to continue on, in such words, he wrote to his whole kingdom. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. He appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice town by town. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them, and they did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now on the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, and that's about 167 BC, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. And this is a phrase that is uh, a similar phrase used in Daniel 7 um, to talk about the, the desolating sacrilege or, or the, um, the abomination that causes desolation. Is in some ways it's, it's translated. But what it is is they literally went into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah. They offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them, and they hung 
the infants from their mother's necks. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. So in chapter 1 of 1 Maccabees, we have this scene set up for us. Alexander the Great conquers the world, generation after generation of his descendants rule, getting all the way down to Antiochus Epiphanes in the 160s, who is um, intent on putting everyone under his thumb, putting his foot on the neck of Israel. And he do, is determined to get rid of the Jewish religion, having the books of the law torn, having the festivals not happen, having the, having the Sabbath defamed and um, eliminating circumcision, doing all of these things. And there are some people who go along with it, and then there are some who don't. And we'll hear a little bit about that next week and the bit about the um, revolt that's going to come out of that. But you can see here echoes of the sentiment and lamentations, echoes of the historical situation of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And this sets us up really well for, again, lamentations and that feeling about the temple in Jerusalem and what happened before the exile gives us a glimpse into how people felt about Jerusalem and the temple at the time of Jesus. This is getting us even closer. This is now only 190 years until Jesus comes and starts saying these things in Jerusalem. So we're getting closer historically, and hopefully these events are starting to um, put flesh and make kind of in technicolor and 3D um, the world that Jesus comes into. And we'll see more as we meet um, maybe Judas Maccabeus and, and see some of the revolt of what happens. And um, interestingly, and I think also important about this is these events also form the basis for um, the modern day festival of Hanukkah. And the Maccabean revolt um, is, is sort of the basis for that festival, which does not come from kind of the Old Testament law, but comes from these events. So it's also something we should know about for our Jewish brothers and sisters. So thank you all for joining us on the slightly different journey that we'll take for the next few weeks, looking at a little bit of the intertestamental period. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for watching along and have a good week.